very shh. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate your thought, expand your consciousness, and encourage community. And by community, I mean groups of people living together collaboratively and cooperatively. I believe humans are tribal animals. We're meant to meet together and live together in relatively small groups, could be 50, could be up to Plato's 1,000, but relatively small groups governing ourselves. Today, we're going to have a very exciting and educational interview with Dr. Jim Fadiman, a monumental figure in psychology in the 20th century, maybe in all of history, if I may put it that way. So stay tuned for this interview with Jim Fadiman. In addition, we have a special guest. Dr. Nick Cozy is joining us today. He's going to be both host and guest, playing both sides of the field. He's America's most prominent psychedelic psychopharmacologist, perhaps the most prominent on the planet. So stay tuned for this interview. And first, some news and notes in psychology and medicine. This is my first broadcast in over two years. I've worked two, three, and four jobs pretty much nonstop since I was 12 and a half years old, and I have very much enjoyed the sabbatical from the tightly scheduled existence that broadcasting and my first radio job required. During my almost 15 years on the radio, rather than miss a program, I took mind, body, health, and politics with me both on family events and vacations. I broadcast from Mexico and Fiji. In January of this year, I took the first three-week vacation in longer than I can remember. Then, Jolie and I returned to our idyllic existence on our Pacific Ocean chicken farm in the peaceful, loving North Coast community of Fort Bragg in Mendocino County, California. Two life-changing events then occurred. The COVID, COVID, the COVID pandemic struck and the President of the United States denied the existence of the pandemic. As a consequence of our President's abdication of responsibility, over 200,000 Americans have died. Untold more will follow, and many of these deaths were preventable. Furthermore, the President's extreme nihilism and crimes against humanity have undermined the public's trust in almost everything, 
Our president has driven us into an Orwellian nightmare of such Shakespearean proportions that even if he is not reelected, after him there will be a deluge. Tens of millions are out of work and food deprived. Institutionalized racism has been exposed and our president denies its existence as he does the imperative of wearing a disease-preventing mask. Knowing the president was economically punishing California because he sees it as a blue state, here on California's north, north coast, we took it upon ourselves to create a remarkable piece of community cooperation. By one poll, over 90% of us have masked up and are practicing social distancing. While we don't know what's coming tomorrow, and maybe it's trouble and sorrow, our infection and mortality rates are presently quite low. We are also working here on the North Coast towards food sustainability in the event of future large challenges. However, the very core of all of our problems is a failed cultural economic system which rewards the very few and punishes the majority. Sadly, we have actually made money more important than life itself. In such a system, nothing can be trusted. De Tocqueville had it backwards. He was swayed by his aristocratic privilege into thinking that in trying a democratic experiment, America was creating a tyranny of the majority. He was wrong. It was a good soundbite. America is a classic tyranny of the minority. We are patterned after ancient Greece and Rome, and we are not all that far from them. I ask myself, how can we eliminate racism without first eliminating economic disparity? How can we accept people of all sexual preferences without first accepting sexuality itself? How can we accept our neighbor without first accepting ourselves? And if each of us is to become more self-accepting, how do we teach self-acceptance? How do we even define self-acceptance? These are some of the many questions we will be asking on mind, body, health, and politics. I opine that self-acceptance is a profound understanding that each human being is of equal value. This understanding allows each person to say and believe, I am of equal value to every person on the planet. To achieve universal self-acceptance, we must create a system which lifts the 40% of America out of the bowels of fear. At bare minimum, we must create a system where every citizen has a sheltered place to sleep, food to eat, medical care, education, and equal treatment before the law. I have returned to the airwaves with Mind, Body, Health, and Politics to shed honest light on these questions and many others, but mostly to create a forum for truth. The people I bring into your lives will be truth-tellers who will earn your trust with what they say 
and how they sound when they say it. You can count on me to ask questions with depth, and when you have unanswered questions, you can count on me to accept your calls and texts when you take these steps to join in the forum. You can text in and call in at 650-TALLY-HO, 650-T-A-L-L-Y-H-O. And now for today's special interview. I met our guest, Dr. Jim Fadiman, in 1969, when we were both part of a group of psychologists organized by Dr. Nick Cummings, founding the California School for Professional Psychology, which was the first freestanding psychology doctoral program in the United States. It now has campuses all around the world. Jim was already a well-known psychologist in 1969, and since then, he has become world-famous for his research and writing, some of which are classics in the field, and you will be hearing about them today. Many of you know Jim from his groundbreaking Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, a must-have in everyone's library. In that book, he audaciously and courageously provides the recipes for the safe and responsible consumption of illegal psychedelic substances. Jim deeply knows that making something illegal not only does not prevent its use, but sometimes inspires its use. Therefore, for him, as well as myself, it follows that better for the illegal users to use safely than without professional proper guidance. This is the same philosophy that you heard exposed on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics years ago from Joey Tranquina and Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum when they advocated for needle exchange. If you're hooked on drugs, better to use clean needles than spread disease with dirty needles. In the past 50 years since I met him in 1969, Jim has written at least 13 books and I say at least because I may have missed a few, he's published hundreds of professional articles, as well as a novel and poetry, and he has hundreds and maybe thousands of professionally memorialized interviews. Jim's contribution to the field of psychology is monumental. Jim Fadiman may be personally responsible for the current worldwide renaissance in psychedelic medicine. And now, with his latest book, The Symphony of Selves, he may change the way the world looks at what we call the self. You will soon know him directly, and you'll know that the man making all these accomplishments is a lovely, warm, down-to-earth person with a great sense of humor. It is a privilege to have him with us today. I also welcome my colleague and friend, Dr. Nick Cozy, as I said before, one of our country's most prominent, perhaps the most prominent, researcher in psychedelic psychopharmacology. I welcome Dr. Cozy as well. Jim, we're going to start with you. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm, 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 I'm abashed at, at what an incredible person I seem to be. Um, it's, it's wonderful, wonderful when you, you live, live inside, inside the box and never 
you don't really pay attention to a lot of things that have happened over your lifetime. So um, if, if I could live up to that introduction, um, I would be just so proud and happy. So we'll see what we can do. Yes, yes. One of the things I have in mind today is to do a three-part interview all in one part with you. First, I would like to go through your books and have you give a short headlines, briefed description of each of the books so our listeners will not only know you from the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, which we're going to discuss in the third part, not only know you from your latest book, The Symphony of Cells, which we will discuss in the third part, but know you historically. What have you done? Why do I call you a monumental figure in the field of psychology? So let's start way back with your first book. Was it 1968, The Proper Study of Man? Yes, and a title that one could could never never have used again again in in our current society, and I'm embarrassed even hearing it. And what it was, um, in those days, publishers would come around to your office, your psychology office, and say, are you working on something? And it was was always better if you said yes. So I'd say, what are you working on? And I'd say, a collection, and they would go away. So what I did is I simply looked through psychology and social science and picked all the things I liked the most, the articles that had mattered to me and made a difference in my own education. And I put them together and made them into little packages of sections and presto, a book. So that was the proper study of man. So the subtitle would be Jim's Favorite Articles. All right. Next. I think next is Exploring Madness. Yeah. Exploring Madness, which is alternative theories of mental illness, um, other than whatever the convention of the day was, is I had, I was a, uh, uh, a therapist, really, at Stanford in the Student Health Center, and one of my wonderful um, students, undergraduate, um, who I helped through a, a really a psychotic period, came to me and said, there should be a book about alternative strategies in mental health. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I, I've been making a list of them. And I said, well, great, good luck. He said, no, no, I want to collaborate with you. And I said, well, what do I have to do with it? It's really your ideas. He looked at me and he said, Dr. Fadiman, I'm an undergraduate. <laughs> you are a doctor of psychology. No one is going to look at a book that I submit. And I thought, he's really figured out marketing. He's figured out a lot of things. And so we did work on it together. And it was a marvelous alternative for people who were trying to teach about psychopathology other than the vanilla uh, psychoanalytic or the vanilla behavioristic. Okay. Exploring Madness. Was Mind Apps next or Unlimiting Your Life? Uh, well, Unlimit Your Life, um, Unlimit Your Life is a, a course I gave for about 10 years on how to get everything you want in life, which is how to set goals and how to achieve them. And there are a lot of methods out there. And I worked with someone named John Boyle, 
who had come from failure to success, so he really understood both sides. And what he found is that people who set clear goals and kept them clear, somehow their world worked better. And so I actually gave a four-day course in, in beautiful places, 50 people at a time, and I felt it was necessary to get that basic information out because most self-help books never look at at the under the reasons why you're not succeeding it's easy to say well all you have to do is such and such and you'll succeed but if you're conditioned to fail if you really believe in your heart of hearts that you're never going to make it when an opportunity comes you will find a way to avoid it and so that was that book which is still out there um, is a way of very simply uh, making your life work and we actually did research on a few thousand graduates and their lives improved and their marriages improved and they made more money and all the, the usual attributes of success. It's not a deep spiritual book. It was just enormously practical. A practical book. And so yeah. are you in accord with the, with the research indicating that those who write down their goals are more successful at achieving them than those who, than those who don't write them and that those who then write them down and make a plan are even more successful? Is there credibility there? Uh, it's extraordinary, <laughs> the difference, and it's just a little difference between writing goals down and not. And although the book is filled with fairly easy, like, two-minute exercises, the real secret is if you can get someone to write down a goal, the chances of achieving it go up. And yes, there's a lot of underlying metaphysics, but the practicality is what's important. Listeners, if, if you stop listening right now <laughs> and write down what Jim just said, in and of itself, it was worth tuning in because the evidence is there. Writing down your goals results in your achieving your goals at a higher rate than if you didn't write them down. Let's now, move on to your next book. Hey, I want to take one little moment because really if you make a list of what you intend to do during the day, the chances of your doing most of the things on the list go way up. And we all know that one. And when we get to the, the sales book, we can see what's going on. Thank you. That's great. Make your lists, folks. Get more accomplished. Personality and personal growth. Oh, my. Do you remember it? <laughs> yes, Bob, Robert Frazier and I, um, he was a professor in Santa Cruz. I was freelancing to try and make a living. And we decided to do a book on theories of personality. And what we looked at is students who take personality classes in psychology, they don't really want to know the difference between uh, Freud and Jung and Skinner and so forth. They want to know about themselves. So we oriented the book called Personality and Personal Growth, which is what are you going to pick from all these theories that's going to work for you? And out of it, indirectly, came the, the first graduate school in transpersonal psychology in the world because Bob and I, while writing a textbook, would rather do other things. And so we imagined what a really decent education would have been. And that became the model of the Institute, Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. So we literally, uh, it was created out of the not quite wanting to spend as much time on the textbook as we did. And the textbook, by the way, went into seven editions, 
It was published in Russia, in South America, in India. Um, there was a hunger for, again, you'll see a, a word that comes up again, something useful, even in an academic course. I love that you're involved in something useful. <laughs> then you wrote a novel, The Other Side of Hate, hate as in hate Ashbury, H-A-I-G-H-T. One of the problems in the days before psychedelics kind of returned is that the, particularly the East Coast, really trashed the whole idea of what happened in Haight Ashbury in that kind of beautiful, innocent time. So I wrote a novel in a sense to uh, give us back a Haight Ashbury that one could imagine, and people who lived there said, Yeah, you got it, man. And I wanted to describe a well-run psychedelic session. Uh, again, there was no hope of our ever being able to do them again. So inside the book, the two characters, um, he has a fantastic breakthrough session, uh, having been um, dosed. And she, wonderful, lovely human being, assists him. So it's a... Uh, it's, a, it's a preview of what good psychedelics are like inside a novel, which includes the amazing, you can only do this in truth, you can't do it in fiction, that the CIA ran a whorehouse in San Francisco during that period, which is fundamental to the plot of the novel. And which happens to be true. Which happens to be true. I mean, you know, if you make that stuff up, and I've taught fiction, you, you just scratch it out of some student's paper and say, that just isn't going to fly. It's just ridiculous. But if you're the government, hey, ridiculous, we'll go for it. And that was part of uh, MK, the government's MK Ultra program, wasn't it? Right. right. And not only that, but they were dosing um, servicemen, army, you know, people who would pass through San Francisco and get a few days off. And that's and then behind in the room where your prostitute would be with your soldier, there was one way glass, and there was a guy sitting behind the glass. And again, I didn't even put it in the novel because it, it was so weird. With a pitcher full of martinis, making notes of what people were doing when he's high on LSD and she's trying her living. And the observer is drinking martinis. Yep. You want to know more about that, folks? Check out Project MK Ultra, the CIA project that Jim is talking about. Actually, uh, the the wonderful book that exposed it all is called Poisoner in Chief. Thank you. Just came out last year. Poisoner in Chief. And it will make you so sad about the many kinds of terrible experiments the government did on other human beings, of which the LSD, the psychedelic ones, were probably the nicest. Well, certainly, because nothing compares to the experiments with syphilis that were done on our black brothers yep. in, in, in the South. Yep. Uh, Jim, may I ask a question? Uh, were the prostitutes uh, in on it? Did they know what was happening? Totally. They were, they were basically, you know, downstairs, hi, uh, let's have a drink, okay? And his drink is drug and your drink is water. Good question. Absolutely knew. We'll now, we'll now move from the Haight-Ashbury to essential Sufism. Oh my, that's quite a jump. <laughs> and also written with Bob Frazier. Right. Actually, Bob Frazier, who'd become a Muslim, is uh, Sheikh Rajiv Frazier in that book. And um, 
there was a very popular book, still is very popular, called The Essential Rooming, the Coleman Barks. And Coleman and I had become friends for other reasons. And one night we talked and he said, they want me to do a book called Essential Sufism. And I said, terrific for you. He said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to write my own poetry. I said, well, I'll do it. He said, okay. <laughs> and it unfolded from there. What are friends for? That was So in the reprise of my first book, because it's actually all the wonderful quotations that Bob and I over the years have had accumulated from a great many different Sufi teachers, again, compiled in, in an interesting way. So, so it's, it's a, a collection, collection of, you know, kind of best of, best of Sufism. You must have a wonderful filing system. <laughs> okay, let's move on now to, we're going to save the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide for the third part of today, and we're going to save the Symphony of the Selves, Health for the Whole Person, the Complete Guide to Holistic Medicine. Once upon a time, the federal government was interested in holistic health. They were interested enough to put up a small amount of money to put up a collection of articles about holistic health. And the person running the, deciding on who got the money to do the book, after it was given to Arthur Hastings and myself, said he would like to be a member of the team. Uh, he became very important in holistic health later on. So we had this collection of wonderful articles from all kinds of interesting people from uh, early health food and, and diet and Tai Chi and meditation um, and exercise and, and all the things which we now associate with holistic health, but then it was very far out. And then we compiled it and we sent it to the government and the government said, oh, I don't know if we want to publish that. And then we, got, we, got, we had a preface from Senator Kennedy at the time. And the government said, we still don't want to publish it, but we'll publish a very small edition because we have to. We then sold it to a very uh, large publisher, and it was a very popular book. Is it still available? It's available. Um, yeah, it's out of print, but I'm sure you can get it online, not very expensively. And it's... it's it's, it's a historical piece because it's what we, what we were trying to get people to be interested in then, all of which now people are interested in now. Related to holistic health, you wrote a book called Relief, Relieve Stress by Meditation. Oh, my. <laughs> That's actually a commercial tape um, that looks somewhat like this in a little box. And the question was, I was just asked, would I be interested? And there was one uh, description of meditation out there by Larry LeShan, quite good, about what meditation was, but it was a what about. And so the problem was, how do you get people to do meditations, basically, when you don't want to hear anything? And there's this guy telling you kind of where your mind is going. So this is four different meditations, one of which comes from psychosynthesis, one is mindfulness, and so forth. Uh, so it's really an introduction to the notion that not only there is meditation, but that it comes in a lot of flavors. So the meditation is more like 31 flavors than each different meditator who says they have the best system uh, might tell you. And since I didn't have a best system, 
I was able to do something just a little more democratic, and I'm going to use the word again, hopefully practical. That's a, yeah, about 40 years ago, uh, the uh, Vipassana meditation people were just starting out, and I happened to meet them at uh, Bob Hall's house in Mill Valley, and they told me they were going to do this 14-day silent medit- Vipassana meditation, uh, and it was about mindfulness. And I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. I, I said, uh, can, is there room? Can I join? And they said, oh, sure, we'd love to have you join in. And uh, 14 days of silence. And, and I said, well, I had just have one question, though. It, do I have to sit in the lotus position for that entire time? Uh, I don't know if I can handle that. And uh, they said, oh, no, you can, you can sit in anything you want. You can bring a chair. It's not about how you sit. This is about watch how you learn and watch uh, your insides. I said, great. So I brought a lawn chair, and uh, and uh, there were a hundred people in the room, and and all of them were sitting in the lotus position, uh, just because that's what they thought they had to do. And I was there in the lawn chair. It was interesting as the days went by, how people would be groaning and falling over, and in such tremendous pain. And uh, I was able to do it because they allowed me to sit in the lawn chair. It was one of the one of the foremost experiences of my life, that 14 days in silence. Uh, really uh, phenomenal. Uh, we're moving on to your next book. It's called Be All That You Are. Well, Be All That You Are um, was a early version of Unlimited Life. And the peculiar part in that one is it was published by a publisher who only published law books. You know, these giant, expensive, uh, you know, tort law in Louisiana, uh, you know, 1912 to 1970, those kind of books. And however, the, the publisher wanted to do this. And so uh, we agreed that he could do one printing of 5,000. And uh, they were then made available to people who were interested in the, the Unlimited Life, which was called Omega for no particular reason. Um, and after those sold, he said, um, well, I have, I, I have the rights to this. And I said, you have the rights to it, but not the moral rights. Please give them to me, and I may wish to publish it elsewhere. And he said, oh, you're absolutely right. I have the legal rights, but it's your book. I hope it does well. And it did. So that's be be all that you are. Yeah, and and the reason I need to change the title is the federal gov the government at that point was putting out army recruitment posters, saying you know join the army and be all that you are until of course you get you know post traumatic stress disorder and a few other problems. So I didn't want to be you know I didn't want to compete with the army on their on their media outlets. Is Transpersonal Education, a Curriculum for Feeling and Being, a separate book that we have not discussed? Oh, yes. yes, I forgot, yes. Um, Gay Hendricks and I were friends and uh, made the Hendricks Institute and many things over the years. And Gay was a graduate student at Stanford, and I was in the Department of Design Engineering, which we may or may not ever figure out why. And he showed up 
And he said, I don't know, I don't want to do that, I don't want to, but I can't do it, but I can't do it because of the department, because of education, because of psychology. And I said, Gay, why don't you actually do what you want and see what happens? And out of that came this collaboration initially of this book, which is again a collection of wonderful articles, early transpersonal education. And out of that uh, came an enormously successful and wonderful career. Um, that he had. And he also ended up marrying one of my graduate students. So um, the, the book has many levels and um, is, a, is really a beautiful collection of anyone who's interested in transpersonal education. Still, it's as valid today as it was then because these are classic ideas. If you're listening and have questions on any of the books that Jim has just described, just dial 650-TALLY-HO, you'll be right here with us. 650-TALLY-HO, here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Jim, um, we have two more books. We're going to have a special <laughs> section on those two more books. But before we do, are all these books um, listed uh, on your website? Can people get right to them So, uh, in case they missed our descriptions that we went through today? Um. As, as of tomorrow, the answer is yes in a separate page. Good. Uh, but for today, if they went to my website, jamesfadman.com or jimfadman.com, just to be you know democratic, um, they're inside my Vita, okay. which, which goes on endlessly about all the things I did rather than have a regular job. <laughs> well, he's telling the truth about uh, the Vita going on endlessly. I think his, his curriculum Vita, if I recall, is 40 pages long. And uh, uh, most of those pages are about his publications. It's really it's a, it's a, a thrill just to uh, go through it. And you learn a lot just by reading what you've researched and what you've done, the titles of your publications. So just go to jimfadiman.com. And you'll see the list, uh, and you can communicate with him probably by email. Uh, yeah. How are you doing there, Nick? Nick, Nick, where are you? Nick, are you all right? Okay. There we go. There we uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm totally uh, enthralled with this discussion so far. What do we have behind you, uh, the beautiful scene that I'm looking at, Nick? It's, is that uh, there you are in Wisconsin? Well, no, it's actually, I'm not outdoors right now, but it's representative of what it looks like in Wisconsin now. Uh, it's fall, uh, a lot of colors in the trees, and it's just a kind of relaxing, you know, pastoral scene to set the mood. Thanks. Jim, we're going to talk a bit about a psychedelic explorer's guide and save your latest book symphony for the cells for the last book and then okay. in the th in the third section we're going to talk about psychedelic research and s microdosing and we i'm sure our listeners are going to want to hear a lot about microdosing and about the experiment you did that i don't know if, uh, very many people know about where you uh, had 1,500 subjects uh, taking uh, LSD. We'll talk about that. But first, the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, which I describe to people as a recipe book, the best recipe 
for safe, responsible use. Tell us about the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Well, uh, again, it, it's kind of interesting to go behind you know, the, the book because by the time you get to the book, everything looks respectable, as if you thought about it in advance, as if this is, you know, there, there isn't a lot of chance that it looks like. But what really happened is uh, a member of my family who was really a beautiful writer um, said to me at some point, you ought to write a biography, you know, you should have an interesting life. And I thought, oh, yes, I am really, really interesting. And so I spent a summer studying myself and my era and looking at the 60s. And I read some of the books that I should have read then and should have been able to refer to. And I was really into what a splendid, interesting person I was. And then I had a revelation, which is, who cares? (laughs) And, And out of that... Uh, the answer, by the way, was probably a smaller group than my Christmas card list. Okay? So then I thought, well, what am I going to do with all this kind of self-study? And then I thought, what do I know that other people don't? And that was the clue that led to the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. And I thought, it's important to retain the knowledge that I have accumulated and that others have accumulated so that, so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel each time. And one of the things I knew a lot about was how to use high-dose psychedelics safely and effectively. And then there were a lot of other sections of knowledge that seemed to be useful. And when I didn't know something that I thought was important, I asked somebody, would they write a chapter? So David Cressy, who I didn't know at the time, but he teaches the most popular course in Berkeley about the mind, brain, and, and consciousness, uh, wrote a book about things, you know, the myths that we need to overcome in terms of psychedelics and so forth. And, again, um, I have to admit that my dissertation, which was the only dissertation on psychedelics that Stanford ever allowed through, um, some of the results are in that book because I finished it just as the government said, we don't want to know anything more about psychedelics. And I noticed that the journals I would have submitted to weren't about to take it. So it's a hodgepodge. I think recipe is a nice thing. It's, you know, if you think of your recipe box, if you still have one of the pieces of paper, there are different colors and some of them are a little wrinkled and some of them are for magazines. But it's your recipe box. So this is, this is the stuff that Jim Fadiman thought was worth saving should civilization continue to decline and we would need to recover this information during our recovery. You wrote your dissertation on psychedelics uh, while psychedelics was still legal, while LSD was still legal, correct? Yeah, my dissertation was the effectiveness of LSD therapy, and notice this is how I got it through Stanford, on behavior change. And what I did was ask people, what's changed since you took psychedelics? Are you watching television more or less? Are you playing with your children more or less? Are you eating more or less vegetables? Are you going to church more or less often? Very simple, practical questions, because the question is still true with psychedelics is, okay, you've seen God, you've been to the top of the mountain, uh, or or anaconda snakes have eaten you alive, whatever drug you're using. The real question is, how has your life changed? Not necessarily improved, that's a subjective, but how has it changed? And that was the question that I did for my dissertation. And as I say afterwards, 
Stanford locked the door, the U.S. government locked the door, and many, many years later, I was able to share some of that, you know, with in the in the psychedelic explorers guide. So, since you were able to use psychedelics while they were still legal, I can yeah. very safely ask you the following question. And since Nick is all, Dr. Cozy is. Uh, old enough to have used psychedelics while it was still legal, I'll be able to ask him the same question. How has the use of psychedelics changed your life, Dr. Jim Fadiman? <laughs> well, let's, let's take two people, okay? Now, um, each 50 years ago, one took psychedelics and one didn't. Both of them would say a lot of changes have happened since then, and I can't attribute all of them to psychedelics. But for me... I have a very simple dividing line, which is I had a psychedelic experience on October 19, 1961, in Menlo Park, and my guides were a professor from Stanford and a younger woman professor, and I came out of that aware that Jim Fadiman is a subset of a kind of larger entity of which I'm a part. And that simple shift, which uh, we now would call dissolving of the ego uh, or the, the lowering of the default network, allowed me to see the world as a much more integrated place so that I was not in nature, I was of nature. And I was not with other people, I was partly other people. And so the dividing line between myself and other people became much thinner and remains so. So at the moment, for instance, I have uh, an eight-pound dog who is a rescue. And the level of communication we have, I don't think I could have had if I hadn't had psychedelics. Now, my dog says that's not really true. <laughs> uh, but but he's, you know, he's better read than I am in some of these areas. Um, so that's a very fundamental shift. Now, the other fundamental shift was, and I can quote um, the chairman of my dissertation committee, um, who was also the ex-president of the American Psychological Association. He said, Mr. Fadiman, if you do this dissertation, you will never have a chance at a respectable academic career. And I'm sitting across the desk, and I'm this little graduate student, and he's this very avuncular, sweet guy. And I thought about it. And I thought, I said, Dr. Hilgard, you took one chance with your career. He did. He set up the first hypnosis laboratory in an academic setting. He said, I'd like to take one risk with mine. And there was this very beautiful silence between us as we both were thinking about it. And he said, okay, I'll be on your committee. And the wonderful thing about it is he was totally right. I was absolutely unable to have a legitimate career in academia, even though I ended up teaching at three universities and ending up for about eight years in design engineering at Stanford, which most psychologists are not invited, uh, and had a lot of other interesting affairs, you know, kind of work-related work odd jobs. Um, and it really came out of that realization that my dissertation, which came out of my initial experience, uh, was career-changing. The experience was life-changing and kind of attitude-changing. 
The first result was career-changing, and the rest has unfolded. I took a course in hypnosis with Ernest Hilgard, <laughs> and at the end of the class, I asked him, how did you get into hypnosis work after a long career studying psychology in rat laboratories? As you know, he did, and he was, yep. he was yep. certainly made his, his whole career that way. And he said, Richard, I wanted to study hypnosis right out of graduate school, but I knew if I did, it would ruin my academic career. So I spent my life studying rats until I got tenure and was secure enough that I could actually research and study what I wanted to. That's wow. quite, it's quite a story. Well, I mean, what, I mean, that really adds a, a level to what he said to me that I've never had before. And that had he told me that story, I might have been foolish enough to follow his example instead of saying, oh, the hell with that. I'm just going to need to do what I want. And if, you know, and if, and if I don't have a regular academic career, surprising to many people in the academy, there's other things you can do with your life that are really terrific. But wow, that's a fascinating story. About, oh, about Hilgard, yeah. And yeah. a, 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 a similar thing happened to me as well. I was teaching at the University of Michigan and had a similar story and uh, came out and, and uh, met Fritz Perls and Virginia Satir at Esalen and, that, uh, and took LSD that summer, 1967, and, wow. uh, and had a transformational experience. And that, that was also the end of my uh, academic career for the most part. Uh, Nick? Oh, excuse me. Go ahead, Jim. A contemporary difference. You and I both kind of lost academic careers over our internal psychedelic experience. Right now, there's a listserv called Maps Grad, um, which has well over a thousand students from a dozen disciplines, ranging from first year graduate students to fourth year medical students, all of whom are working towards careers in psychedelics. That's the cultural shift. Okay? Yes. yes. You were going to ask Nick something. Yeah, I was going to ask Nick about yeah. how uh, psychedelic materials and substances have changed your life. Thank you. Uh, I just had to unmute my mic. Oh, you know, uh, there are a lot of uh, parallels to what uh, Jim just described uh, that happened in my life. I kind of grew up in the 1960s. And, uh, you know, had uh, psychedelic experiences then. And they really, uh, well, I had probably the most important for me revelation is kind of the way Jim described this kind of uh, recognition that everything is, is a unity, that I'm just one, like, part of this great consciousness, this great God, uh, really, um, that and it was a revelatory, uh, you know, experience. I had had that experience before that time, uh, but I really felt connected to all life and indeed the whole universe and the experience of it just kind of alive, breathing, throbbing, um, really quite a wonderful experience. I never saw the world, you know, the same way after that. And it, I would say it uh, directed my career, uh, ultimately, 
when I after you know graduating high school and uh, going to college, I kind of took a little bit of a a detour and uh, did some employment, not non science based employment. Uh, but there came a point that I realized that there was this kind of these unanswered questions that were generated from my early experiences that I wanted to explore. And so I went back to uh, college to complete my degree. And I mean, at that point, I was purely focused on studying uh, psychedelics using my love of science to kind of um, shape and, and guide me. And uh, so I made, you know, no bones about it. I, I did have a professor who was discouraging uh, to me uh, as a grad student uh, when he learned that I wanted to study these substances. And it was a, a comment that I picked up secondhand, but it was, when is he going to grow out of this? And, you know, I kind of had this response that, you know, I take what I'm interested in as seriously as, as this other person takes his interest. You know, he happened to be studying uh, uh, dioxin-like substances and toxicologists. And so um, I thought, well, there's, you know, there's, there's no shame in this. This is a, a totally fascinating intellectual uh, area and uh, there's much uh, research to be done. Uh, at, at this point, though, the research had been uh, stifled quite a bit, as, as you all know, after the uh, Controlled Substances Act, I think, in 1970 was probably really the, uh, the largest impediment to doing research in this area. But I uh, was able to do research. I had some uh, professors who were uh, open-minded, uh, who were neuroscientists, uh, who were pharmacologists. And so to a, a, a pharmacologist, a neuropharmacologist or a psychopharmacologist, this is you know totally fascinating stuff. And uh, so uh, there are people who were able to kind of be role models for me, uh, Sasha Shulgin, Dave Nichols. Uh, these were, you know, hardcore, rigorous scientists who published in scientific journals, well-respected scientific journals, peer-reviewed articles, and so they kind of set a model for me to follow. And so uh, that's how I uh, became involved in my career uh, with, with psychedelics. Uh, so... Early experiences as a teenager in the 60s kind of, uh, you know, shaped my entire career. And, and here I am, you know, 50 years later and uh, still actively involved in research in this area. And happy to say that they're more accepted now. Uh, when I was studying these as a graduate student in the you know, 1980s, early 1990s, uh, there still wasn't so much support for this kind of research, but uh, in the last 10 years or so, there's been quite a bit of interest, as you know, uh, popular literature, movies, uh, news art, news stories, and so on have come out. Yes, I think, I think in a lot of that, Nick, uh, excuse me for interrupting, I think a lot no. of that renaissance is due to Jim Fadiman sitting right here with us. 
Well, I, I, that's exactly right. And, and so I'm you know, honored to be sharing this program uh, with you, uh, uh, Jim, uh, and, and Richard, too. Uh, you're both uh, uh, you know, mentors to, uh, to me. And so, uh, yeah, so that was kind of, I, I guess that's my answer uh, to your question. Did I, did I uh, leave anything out? Uh, no, but I want to say that I think of the three of us it's best that you were the one that stayed in academia because Jim and I have been able to make our contribution to psychology outside of the walls of academia, but you really needed the, uh, the university for your laboratories and for your research. So I think it, uh, it all worked out quite well. My, my own yeah. story that I want to add about uh, how it transformed my life is extremely similar to you both. Um, one time I had a, uh, a vision of the, uh, of the planet covered by a hairnet, and it was a neuronal hairnet, and I had the realization that every person on the planet is connected by this neuronal hairnet, and that was my sense of feeling connected and it gave me this deeper sense of connection with every, not only every person, but everything living. Because the next picture I got was a picture that gave me the realization, it was a visual picture of the planet, and it gave me the realization that the planet itself is a living, breathing organism, and that we are all part of that living, breathing organism, and that everything on the planet is part of that living, breathing organism, and that we're all living and breathing on it together. And that really uh, changed, it changed my life. Because the other experience, as I mentioned, was taking the LSD at Esalen in 1967, which really uh, pretty much ended my academic career, because I went back to to U of M and, and uh, resigned uh, going forward uh, shortly thereafter. So we're going to move on now, gentlemen. No, 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 no. We got to we got to stop because I need to connect Nick and I because Nick gave me one of the wonderful experiences of my life, which was seeing a skilled chemist, organic chemist, whatever we want to call him, making psilocybin. Oh, good. And I visited a university for a conference and stayed with, with Nick and other people for a few days and hung out in the lab where Nick was in the last day or so of a week-long uh, making synthesis, which included, as I remember, one or two nights sleeping in the lab. And at one point, he showed me this substance and I looked at it, and it was kind of a white powder, and I said, um, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to get out of this. He said, it's white. <laughs> I got the, 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 the step just before had, had color in it, which meant impurities. And so uh, it was a little, it was kind of, I guess, for like a city boy going to a farm and being at the birth you know, of, a, of a foal, I was seeing this substance come into form, and I really understood that this was enormous amount of hard work, a lot of steps, a lot of problems, a lot of possibilities of failure, and I, I have it as one of the great pleasure experiences of my life, and thank you, Nick. Oh, well, it, uh, it warms my heart uh, to hear you say that. Uh, it just... It, 
it's those special moments that, uh, you know, happen in the laboratory that I really uh, value a lot. And, and I recall very fondly your visit to the University of Wisconsin. Uh, well, in the conference, there was a conference at uh, the, uh, uh, the International Forum on Consciousness at Promega, but then you were kind enough to uh, give your time to the university community, the University of Wisconsin students and, and staff, and uh, and it was it was great. And yes, you're right. And so you know, this was uh, part of the psilocybin. And just as an aside for uh, the listeners and viewers, uh, when uh, Dr. Nichols retired in 2012, uh, I kind of took over the supplying the substance for the uh, ongoing clinical trials, and that was a batch of psilocybin that was destined for probably Hopkins or NYU, and uh, it's, it's that, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I call it pulling the white out of the black, um, and so, so sometimes these mixtures are really quite, quite colored, and dark colored, and um, you know, it's a, it's kind of a reward uh, that you know God has provided uh, when when you see the crystals come out, and it's 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 kind of a unity experience for me, very, very much so. Uh, it's kind of on two different levels. I'm just kind of thinking out loud here because it's a psychedelic substance, but the experience itself is psychedelic without actually taking a psychedelic. Uh, if that makes sense, uh, but so, but the fact that it's a psychedelic substance kind of raises it to like another kind of level of uh, I don't know coincidence or whatever you want to call it about resonance. Resonance, yes. Thank you very much, Jim. <laughs> okay. Yes. Back to, back to our moderator. Yes, sir. <laughs> Lovely listening in. I just got a little note from our uh, producer, Charlie Bry uh, Deist, <laughs> uh, yeah. asking whether you gentlemen would like to take a brief break. Would you want yes. to? Would you like to sure. take a brief break? Okay. Yes. Why don't you two take a brief break, and I will um, also take a break, Charlie, or am I going to be doing some uh, underwriting? Both. Both. Okay. You, t you guys, gentlemen, take a break. Come right back to your screens when you're done. Uh, Charlie, if you'll put the underwriting up on the screen for me, uh, I think I'll read it right now. This program is made possible, thanks in part, to the support of Wilbur Hot Springs, a health sanctuary and nature preserve located in Calusa County. I'm sure many of you know Wilbur, what are we doing there? We're getting this uh, music in the background. Did you hear that? Uh, thank you. As many of you know, Wilbur has been a place for me to rest and replenish for decades. It's completely off the grid. It's a natural sanctuary where the slogan for over 100 years has been in all the world, no waters like these. This year, it's especially vital to take time to unplug to be with nature and to focus on personal well-being. It's absolutely essential to maintaining a healthy sense of self. Where better to do it than at a health sanctuary? I suggest you step away 
from your devices because Wilbur is a cell phone and computer uh, technology free zone and take a deep breath. Imagine the birds singing, the sun shining, and the medicine warmer water enveloping you. There's just no better place than Wilbur for a change of scenery. Many of you know that I started the present health sanctuary at Wilbur Hot Springs in 1972 and operated it until just this year when it was taken over by four lovely people uh, who uh, have become very close friends of mine. They're continuing the legacy, and I'm sure you're going to continue to love being there. Go to wilbahotsprings.com and book your stay. And I'm there on a regular basis. If you see me, say hello and let's have a chat. And I'll be happy to talk about anything you've heard on this program or any of the archives on mind, body, health, and politics. Check it out. Wilbur Hot Springs. Where do we go now, Charlie? Taking a short break. Please stay with us. Okay, you're muted now. Um, share the screen. Keep the music going for the listeners. Can't take too long a break with radio, Charlie. Right, we'll just take one minute. We're going to lose them. Yeah, I just well, I just wanted to know if. Not sure the break is even a good idea. Welcome back to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Thank you for taking that break with me. Our guests today are Dr. Jim Fadiman and Dr. Nick Cozy. Many of you know Dr. Nick, uh, Dr. Jim Fadiman from his very famous book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Soon we're going to be talking to him about his most recent book, uh, Symphony of the Cells. Our other guest is Dr. Nick Cozy of the University of Wisconsin Medical School. He is arguably the most prominent psychopharmacologist in the area of psychedelic science in the United States. Nick, are you still with us? No, I guess they're both uh, on their breaks. So, I beg your pardon? Oh, yes, that's the other thing. Hi. So... While we're waiting for Jim Fadiman and, okay. and for Nick Cozy, who are coming back, I want to tell you something that happened uh, here in um, Fort Bragg, Mendocino County, uh, in Northern California, for those of you who are far away. Mendocino County is about three hours uh, northwest of San Francisco. Uh, we... Uh, when the pandemic came, we discovered that being in this little town, seven or 8,000 people, and being part of a coastal community of maybe 20,000 people, we found out that we had little, if any, COVID testing. Then we found out that when we did have a little testing, 
it took 10 to 14 days to get results. Well, what are we going to do about that? In response to this health challenge, a group of local citizens, Dr. John Gallo, an environmental biologist, Dr. Michael St. John, an economist, Dr. Uh, Nick Cozy, who's on our program with us today, and Paul Katzif, the founder of the Thanksgiving Coffee Company, and myself, formed the COVID Response Network, and we made it into a nonprofit 501c3. The mission of this COVID Response Network is twofold, to promote mask wearing, social distancing, and when possible, testing, tracing, isolating, and quarantining. But really all we had was mask wearing and social distancing. And the second part of the COVID Response Network is to create community resilience in preparation for what fu the future may bring that we're going to have to deal with. So far, our efforts have been remarkably successful. We've met with the Sheriff, Matt Kendall. We've met with supervisors, Ted Williams and Dan Jurdy, and we've got them to post signs all around the North Coast, encouraging people to wear masks and to socially distance. And as I said in the earlier part of the program, I'm pleased to say we believe we have over 90% compliance, maybe over 95%. And as a result, so far, we've been able to keep the infection rate extremely low. Recently, one of the COVID Response Network founders, Paul Katzif, has created a unique form of co-donation, which I invite and encourage each of you to participate in. Here it is. Paul's company, Thanksgiving Coffee, has created a special coffee which will feature mind, body, health, and politics on the label. For those of you who are watching, here it is. There's the bag. Again, can you see it on the screen? I believe you can. Okay. 20% of all the sales of web purchases of this Mind, Body, Health, and Politics Thanksgiving coffee will go to the COVID Response Network, and every penny of that is going to go to protecting the people on the North Coast. So I encourage, invite, and actually ask you to go to the website of the Thanksgiving Coffee Company, look for the Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee, and become part of our COVID Response Network. Buy the coffee for your home, buy some for gifts. Remember, 20% of your purchase will go to the COVID Response Network. Thank you for your participation in this. Okay, and again, we're coming back to our uh, guest, Dr. Jim Fadiman and Dr. Nick Cozy. And I want to remind you that if you have questions for them, 650-TALLY-HO, 650-T-A-L-L-Y-H-O, 650-TALLY-HO. Tally-ho. Welcome back, Jim and Nick. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, now we're going to talk about Jim's latest of 13 plus books. Again, I just want to go back and remind you all that if you want the list, the complete list of Jim's book, as of tomorrow, they'll be on his website. You don't have to pour your way through his 40 page resume, but it will be there 
And I encourage you, build yourself a Jim Fadiman library. You'll be glad you did. There's something of value in every book. And remember what he said earlier in the interview. He's a practical person. So there's practical information. It isn't all theory and stuff that it's, you can use abstractly, practical and down to earth, as you can hear that he is in person. Symphony for the Cells. How did this come about? Tell us about the book. Well, the book, uh, Your Symphony of Cells, is by myself and Jordan Gruber, and I'll get to that. But one of the things that always puzzled me is why people are what I would call inconsistent. You know, you can't trust someone to be the same each time. And we all have uh, moments in our family when, you know, Uncle Abner all of a sudden does something really mean to someone, and so we stop talking to him. We all have those stories in our family. And I started to look at the question of, is there another way to look at this that simply makes more sense? And that's the point of practicality. The point of theories is they make the world make more sense. Just as we found that the flat earth theory didn't do well when you started to have navigation. Okay? It, it was okay until then because people didn't need it. So what I looked at is a simple question is... Have you ever argued with yourself? And the answer, of course, is, yeah. And then I said, well, who was the other person arguing? And at that point, we all go into a small freeze because we don't have an answer. Okay? And we then begin to look at other situations of our own inconsistency. And the language is full of them. Can you, um, have you ever said to yourself, I don't know what got into me? Okay? My favorite, because it has a lovely visual to it, is I was beside myself. <laughs> who, was, who was the other self I was beside? Um, I can't believe I did that. And some of you may recall a time that you don't recall when you woke up and you thought, I remember drinking, but I don't know where I am. And if you then rolled one side, you may have said, and I don't know who I'm with. Okay? Now, what you know is somebody walked into that building. Somebody got into that bed. Somebody collapsed. But you, the person that woke up, don't know that. And so what happens is by not paying attention to the reality of those inner divisions, we try and squash them together. We try and imagine that we're a single unified self. Now, we look like a single self, except that we have uh, four chambers of the heart, and we have two kidneys, and we have all kinds of divisions. We have different hands that can do different things. But we have a, a notion, perhaps from monotheism, that it's kind of the, that you should be a single person. And there is that notion of, you, you should be the same in every situation, which is actually physically and emotionally insane. As uh, we say in the book, we have a long section on Herschel Walker, who was this incredible, multi-talented guy. He not only was the um, NFL's most valuable player as a football player, but he danced in ballet. Um, he uh, invented businesses. And what he says in a very lovely way is, 
you don't want the Herschel Walker, who is a football player, to babysit your children. Those are different people. And what we're finding is successful people immediately say, oh, yes, I get that I'm separate people. And since memory is shared, um, it's, it's not a difficult problem. But we also have a term called triggered. Triggered is when, uh, for instance, you are of a political, um, political persuasion, and someone who you thought was in your persuasion turns out to be absolutely in the other persuasion. And suddenly you're feeling angry, they're feeling angry, and sometimes you can't control it. Again, we joke about don't talk politics at Thanksgiving. Remember when we used to have Thanksgiving together? And we don't talk politics because various people will be unable to control themselves and will become as if they're other people. So we see it all the time. So what Jordan and I did um, is we put together both a, a very coherent explanation of what this looks like and and what your goals are, that mental health is different than, than I was taught and that I've given courses in. And then if this were true, if we are multiple selves, it should be visible in all kinds of situations. So we have, honestly, perhaps a thousand examples from music, from philosophy, from religion, from neuroscience, from psychology, uh, of places where, the, where people have acknowledged the multiplicity of cells. There's also pathology, as there is of every other kind of mental form. And the pathology is when the cells are not, are not helping each other. They're actually against each other, and sometimes they don't know about each other. And, and we won't talk much about that because um, the book is about us. It's not about those people over there. So that's, that's the basic core, and, and I've been actually working on it for 30 years. And when I teamed up with Jordan, who is a gifted researcher and writer and a very old friend, uh, I said, here are my files, Jordan, take a look. And I gave him this great file drawer. And about two weeks later, I said, oh, Jordan, I'm looking around, and here's the other file drawer. Move closer, Jim. We lost <laughs> you there. And, and, and I was giving Jordan these file drawers full of things that I'd been accumulating over 30 years, articles, cartoons, and so forth. We've okay. got an issue here, Charlie. Uh, we're losing Jim's uh, voice. Can you help us? Jim's Charlie? Let's okay. hear you again, Jim. Okay, are my back? Well, you're 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 low. You're quite low. Well, I can't get much closer. I can kiss the my kiss okay. my street. Something something changed, but we'll we'll deal with it. Okay. So anyway, um, Jordan came back to me and said, "Hey, do you know you had eight different book outlines over the past several decades?" And we moved from there, and so the book is a compilation of a great deal of thinking, a great deal of research, and strangely enough, something that for many of us is obvious. But once you understand that there are selves, you become kinder to other people because you're not demanding consistency from them, which they don't have. And you end up forgiving yourself for parts of you that you're not, that other parts are not fond of. And the whole world curiously makes more sense, just as making, getting that the earth is round 
makes more sense. And um, a model is in astronomy. We used to have a theory that the Earth was the center of the universe. And that was okay until people started measuring the orbits of the planets. And they would come up with the, the most complicated possible things to make it fit that a planet was actually revolving around the Earth when it obviously wasn't. So when the obviousness of the sun being the center happened, all the astronomers said, oh, wow, not only is life easier, but we can make a massive strides forward because we're seeing things exactly as they are, not some fantasy that, that continually collided with reality. Because that's where we are. And now I can't hear you. Okay. Uh, that was wonderful. Uh, very nice. I love the title, Symphony of Selves. Uh, is quiet. It just really brings up a terrific image in my mind. Uh, uh, very nice. Well, you may recall way back when we started the program, um, it was the beginning of Beethoven's Fifth. And that's a complicated symphony. But all the people in the orchestra are aware that they're part of this organism and their job is, is harmony, not becoming the most important person in the orchestra. Right, and right. Internally, mental health is yourselves are in harmony so that the one who is talking right now, somewhat scientific, somewhat objective, um, isn't the same one that is talking to his little dog who licks his ear early in the morning. Because the, it, it would make no sense if that person who you see here behaved that way towards a little dog. And we all know, hopefully, that if you're working hard on a project and you come home, you need to shift into being a husband, um, spouse, parent, uh, and so forth, so that life becomes um, healthy. And our definition of mental health is being in the right mind at the right time. So it doesn't mean that you should be a sweet husband all the time or a gung-ho, you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneur the whole time. Both of those don't make sense. But being the right one at the right time does. And that's what the book is about. And one last kind of opening comment. Uh, I've written a lot of books, as we have discussed, and including the self-help books of Unlimit Your Life and Be All That You Are. And all self-help books do, at the end of it, you're supposed to do stuff. Make lists, make affirmations, change your diet, jog, whatever it is. You know, go to church, um, be kind to your, you know, your parents. The wonderful thing, and we're getting these letters back from people that said, I'm reading your book, and I can see the differences in my life. Just by reading it, I now understand stuff, and I'm behaving differently. And one of my favorites is a therapist who said, I'm just asking my patients to read your book first before we do therapy because it's going to go so much faster. So that's an opening kind of um, description. It's actually kind of an info commercial disguised as a description. Okay. Hello. Do you want to weigh in right now, Nick, or do you want to wait? Oh, well, uh yeah, uh, well, it seems that, you know, uh, like Western psychiatry, and I, I don't even know if the word Western is appropriate there, but, you know, we're taught that there, we have a, se a self, you know, that is 
uh, kind of you know running the ship so to speak and kind of going through uh, the day and uh, I think that 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 holding on to that notion that there is a self uh, a, a main self or something might be the source of a lot of um, stress and and conflict in our lives and that the uh, thing that you just described where you have you know, multiple selves and recognizing them and, and honoring them, honoring their specific talents and appropriateness in certain situations is seems to me a, a much more harmonious way to live. Uh, and, you know, instead of trying to get everything to fit into oneself, um, just acknowledging the, the, the multi dimensions that we have and that these are all valid and, 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 and worthy selves. Very nice. Right. And um, the problem that we really had is, okay, we got it. Now, why did we have to write a you know, 400-page book to say that? And the answer is partly because we want to make, uh, we want to pe people to get sensitized so they're used to thinking in that way, and they begin to see it in their lives. Almost in every chapter, we say, test this theory, you know, test this out in your life. This is not a theory. This is a bunch of observations. And we actually have a chapter filled with theories of various psychotherapeutic schools. Many of them talk about subpersonalities, um, parts. Other, We have a, actually a list of 50 terms that people have used, which suggests it's common, to try and get a handle on what people are actually experiencing in their lives. And when you start from experience, it's surprising how much better your life works. If you have to assume that you're a unified self, as Nick is saying, it's hard. It's mainly hard because it's not possible. And it isn't the round square in the, the round peg in the square hole. It's a whole bunch of different pegs. And you're saying, but there's only one hole. And as you know from our little children's toys, that doesn't work very well. Jim, can a person be a unified self and separate selves at the very same time? Yes. And I, I ask that because I have conceived of the self as a gemstone and the different parts are facets of the gemstone. And so I see that at different times we may dust off a different facet and that's how we behave but all these behaviors are still part of the one gemstone. Does that make sense? It's actually a lovely different metaphor because you're saying, I have different parts that reflect in different directions, different amounts of light at different times. That's the gemstone. Yes. And what we're saying is that's exactly what it looks like and that the gem looks like a physical body in which those facets all fit. And the difference, I think, in what we're saying is what you are working on is to increase the harmony between these selves. And the gemstone gets a little, little physically hard at that point um, to, to use. But if you, if you think of that gemstone as a bunch of facets kind of fitting around each facet can be tuned for an appropriate moment. And that appropriateness what we're, what we're saying is your goal is internal harmony so yourselves all work to help each other. 
and what we're calling cohesion. So they kind of all are going in the same direction. When a person listening, when they're thinking about themselves, either talking to their dog, as you said, or maybe talking to uh, uh, someone at work, the lyrics are different. Are you, <laughs> are you also saying that the music is different? We're saying that the language is different, the tone is different. Literally, there's a well, there's a physiological difference. Uh, we call you go you you are in a situation. You say, "Oh, now I'm relaxed." Okay, I was in sales meetings all day, and I was absolutely on. And it's going to take me a while to relax. You're now at home, and your beloved says to herself or his self. Yeah, it takes you a while before you kind of get rid of the office. And a great many people, if you ask them, are you, do you wear something different to work than at home? The answer is yes. And a lot of, I, I remember vividly now that it comes back to me, I worked at one point, I was consulting to Lockheed Space and Missiles. And I cannot say enough not nice about that company at that time. They were a defense contractor. Uh, and they were, they, were, they were just not nice in many ways. And I would be there all day doing interviews. And I came home. And it was the only time in my life I literally took off all my clothes and changed into other clothes before I was with Dorothy. And I realized now in retrospect, I was trying to, the Lockheed person didn't really want to be, didn't want to do that to the Dorothy person. And so we do that. If you think about it, um, you really are with your beloved differently than you are with colleagues and different than you are, say, in sales where you're, you know, you're pushy. So that's normal, that's healthy, that's sane. And to try and be the same in all of those is a kind of fanaticism that's scary. Some of us have people we know that whatever you say, they're going to say the same thing. You know, it's a lovely day. Well, not if you think about injustice. <laughs> okay? And you think, wait a moment. I, I admit I wasn't thinking about injustice. And you say to them, how about look at those flowers on the hillside? And they say, all I see is injustice. Okay? That's what we call, see, that's almost a single self, and it's pathology. And that's what we're looking at. So... So notice if you have different selves, you're already a healthy person. And if you know how to use them, you're usually a successful healthy person. But there, there is one time when if you experience many selves, you're not a healthy person. Yeah. And that's what we call multiple personalities, which is different from what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. It's called the, the, the professional term, and we spend a chapter saying it's a, it's a lousy term, but it's out there called disassociation. And disassociation says, yes, there are selves. If you read their literature, they are totally clear. Everyone in their clinical population has selves, but they don't work well together. They are disassociated. What we're saying is, yes, what the rest of us are doing is being associated at various levels, so that we function well. And I'm, I'm thinking of a very early uh, description. It's the time of William James. And a, a, a personality says to another personality inside the body, if you tell the doctor about me, 
your other self, I'm going to hurt you. And the person tells the doctor, and that night, person goes to bed, and they wake up, and their body has scratch marks that their own body has done to itself. That's pathology. That's a lack of harmony, to say the least. That's a lack of cohesion. What we're looking at is, for most of us, we have various levels of cohesion, and by seeing that, seeing that cohesion is more cohesion is possible, we're in better harmony. So, Would you agree that a major differentiating factor between a healthy symphony of selves, if you will, mm-hmm. and a dissociative multiple personality, the, right. the differentiating factor is that the symphony selves know each other and are aware of each other's behavior, thoughts, yep. and feelings, whereas the person whom I've treated, for example, who has multiple personalities, is not aware of some of the other personalities or where they've been when they are one of the personalities. So she might wake up 30 miles away from her home and have no idea whatsoever how she got there, but she was not drinking alcohol or taking any substances. Right. Now, that's actually what's so fascinating. And the word I use is Multiple personalities is a description like having hands. Healthy multiple personality is somebody whose selves are working together. A disharmony, a disassociation is is like your patient. Um, And we have cases of of what is called, you know, amnesia, where a person ends up in the next village, and these are older cases, and they set up, they don't remember where they're from, and they... Lean a little forward, Jim, please. So they know how to repair shoes. Thank you. And so they become a cobbler in this other village. And then at some point, they realize that they actually are someone else, and they're from a village 100 miles away, and they go back to their prior life. And and those are disassociated. They're not necessarily, you know, they're kind of pathology. We call them selective amnesia, but that's because we don't have the general term of looking at selves. But that's obviously another form where the disassociation leads to problems. The problem is not that your patient was a bad person. The problem with your patient was that they weren't in touch with their parts enough to actually have memory between them and to help each other. That's right, that's right. You mentioned uh, earlier uh, in the discussion of the Symphony of Selves this uh, athlete, Her- uh, Herschel Walker. Yeah. Uh, why did you select him? What about him was so unusual? I mean, other than the fact that he was both a football player and a ballet dancer, which speaks for itself. Well, partly because Herschel wrote a book about his personalities um, because at one point Herschel was going to do something terrible he was got angry at someone over an automobile sale and he was driving to their house and he had a gun a person who was cheating me in an automobile sale right and another part of him was saying don't do that that's 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 nuts you know that's terrible that isn't who you are and you don't want to do that and he said because of that argument and by the way he did not go and shoot the person um that argument brought him into therapy. 
And in therapy, he began to understand that there was a bunch of Herschel Walkers. And then he began to recall why his life had worked so well, because, for instance, he had a self that could turn off pain. Now, when you're in professional football, that's a very important and not necessarily healthy, but it's a very important way of surviving difficult situations. He knew he had that because as a child, he had started to outgrow being a fat, you know, fat, slow kid by exercise and running. And he had pain in his knees from running. And he realized he could turn off the pain and continue to train. So this was early understanding of selves, not with the metaphor, but just understanding that he could be different parts of himself. And so as he matured and had this remarkable set of careers, all of which took different skills, um, he began to describe himself uh, in this way of, of, you know, you don't want the football player to be your babysitter. And the, the crisis came when, when there was a moment of incredible disharmony for which he got, you know, professional support. And we, we have him because he's, he's beautiful, he's handsome, he's interesting, um, he has great quotes, okay, and all the things you want. Uh, when you write books about, about human beings, what we forget the data, we forget the theory, we forget the structure, we remember the stories. And when you read about Herschel Walker, you will, you'll remember that and you'll say, oh, yeah, I guess that's a little bit like Herschel, what I'm doing right now. What do you remember most from the research as you were writing this book? What do you remember that sort of stood out, that surprised you, that jumped out at you? Well, probably, I, I would say, you know, what comes to mind is not a direct answer. And you notice when you give a really hard question, people dodge it. I don't know if you've seen any presidential debates lately. <laughs> What comes to mind is my daughter over the years saying to me, Dad, you got to write that book. Now, my daughter is a, a full professor of, of uh, geography and a world traveler and a, and a uh, National Geographic explorer. She's got a lot of selves. Um, but what she was saying is growing up with that notion allowed her to be okay with, for instance, falling apart over a breakup and pulling herself together and going and teaching and then falling apart after teaching. That's a, a use of selves. And that's, that didn't, by now it didn't surprise me, but it was like proof of concept, what it is in your own family when people begin to think that way. And so... Um, once you see it, I mean, it's like once you see the world is round, you say, well, what else surprises you? And the answer is less surprises you. Here's, here's the revelation. Less surprises you because, for example, when someone is very inconsistent, you don't suddenly say, well, I'm going to change my opinion of that person because I know I've just learned, you know, that they cheated on their taxes in a way that I found repugnant. Now, that means if you have the single self-assumption, which is false, I have to throw away the whole person because I have found this rotten spot. If you have a selves understanding, is that part of them is that way? And you decide whether or not how important that is. But you don't throw away the rest of them um, for the, you don't throw, you know, if, if one finger 
you know, gets into the peanut butter when you're supposed to be passing it, you don't cut your hand off. Well, I want to maybe debate that with you a little bit because there are circumstances which seem to contaminate the whole swimming pool, even though it's just sure. a little part of it that uh, I got some poison in it. Uh, yep. I mean, you know, the famous story of outside of that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? So right. no matter how good her evening was and her appetizers were and the dinner were and the play was excellent, the event itself marred everything, of course. And suppose, for example, you discover that someone that you're getting to be close friends with is a white supremacist right. and, and is an ardent racist. Can we select to be with the other parts of that person and have a wonderful time? knowing that that particular other facet of them could come out at any moment? And the answer is, depends on who you are. Because the, the way to check is not through a friend, but one of your relatives, because you can't get rid of relatives, okay? You may not talk to them for 30 years, but they're still your relative. So uh, I have a relative who um, is totally committed to whatever Republican is in power. doesn't matter. And he's a lovely, interesting guy. He's made a beautiful uh, marriage uh, with someone with a number of kids. He settled down from being a kind of crazy salesperson to being just a wonderful family person. And if we get into politics, we go to opposite sides of the room and we put on our boxing gloves. So we don't do that. Okay. So I understand that he is as committed to his point of view as he is aware that I'm committed to mine, but we don't make our, we don't make that a break point. Now, sometimes the selves that you don't like are sufficiently omnipresent um, that you do make a break point. And if you think about it more in terms of a love relationship, you're dating, you like each other, you're turned on um, physically. It's great. Um, and then something comes up, which turns out to be very critical, such as for instance, um, one of them says, I hope you know that I don't want children. And, you, and the other one says, I hope you know that I'm about to break up with you. <laughs> okay? Uh, it's not a question of selves. It's a question of what's going to happen in the real world. Yes. And, and therefore, that's an alternative example. And yes, you stop seeing each other because there isn't enough cohesion between the two of you to overcome the difficulty. Is, is there anything that you'd like to say about the book or is there anything, Nick, that you would like to ask Jim about the book that we have not covered? Now's the time to do so. I have a question if you don't have something that, uh, that pops up. I have one other item that's curious. Good. We, f we finished the book, took us a couple of years. We got it to the publisher. We're done with the revisions. We put all the, you know, we've got all the permissions. Blah, 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 blah. And then I say, I want to put in a little preface. And the preface says, this book isn't as radical as we, the authors, thought. Because among the things that happened is Jordan did some incredible scholarship. And we found out that psychology in its infancy started off both in France and in the United States 
totally accepting the reality of selves. It's in William James, it's in Freud, it's in Jung. And then things happened with each of these individuals, except James, and they changed their, their theory for different reasons. So the original psychology accepted and made use of and understood selves. Then what we would call maybe the deep freeze happened. And in the past 10 or 15 years, particularly with some psychotherapeutic systems, uh, particularly like internal family systems, the return of selves has been emerging in clinical work. We are returning it to where James was, which is in normal work. So this is not um, an attack or even a um, anything about prior work. It's simply we're returning psychology to where it was. And if I think about it in my own career, and I've never thought about this, um, I was unable to do my own work on psychedelics for like 40 years because the government said, I don't want to know anything. Don't tell me anything about psychedelics. They must be bad because I made a rule. And at the same time, psychology was saying, I don't want to talk about selves. It's pathology. It's bad people. It's crazy people. And it isn't us. And so that, too, was suppressed. And so uh, here I am, you know, kind of not having a regular job, as Jack Hilgard would say. And in two different ways, and they, they overlap, uh, my psychedelic work and the healthy multiples work, um, both lead in the same direction towards people being nicer to themselves and to each other. We have a, a listener from Wisconsin who texted in the following question. When discussing the symphony of selves, Fadiman said, the problem with your patient, that's when you were talking to me, Jim, yep. was that they weren't in touch with their parts enough to actually have memory between them and to help one another. Yep. It was a story about a person with dissociative amnesia. And the listener wants to know, does that not imply that this person's mental illness is their own fault? Um, I never, you know, it's kind of like, um, I, I'm not sure that making anything anyone's fault is an advantage. Um, is it the fault of my relative who totally has the wrong idea about politics because they differ from mine? Um, is he at fault? The answer is, and maybe a better question is, are people responsible for their own mental health? And the answer is, to the extent they can overcome the problems of their past, sure. To the extent that they can't, they get help. You know, um, if I have a flat tire, it's my fault. I drove the car all those thousands of miles until the tire went. But I don't, like, beat myself up for it or feel I have to just somehow carry the car or, you know, hold the tire up. I say, okay, something's wrong in my life. It's not working. Is there a way that I can write it? And I actually find that I call three A's. They come with a little car. They pump up the tire or they give me a spare. And I take responsibility for getting a new tire. So to your question, or the answer of fault is almost always the wrong direction. It's kind of like saying to it, most, most people make mistakes in their lives for two reasons. One is they don't know what to do that's right. The second is they have habit patterns 
that direct them in a way that isn't always helpful. And your patient had a problem, which is they, as you call it, disassociated amnesia, meaning that the various parts actually didn't know what the others were doing. That's a pathology. That's a, that's a mental breakdown. And the idea of them being responsible makes very little sense to me. And it's an, it's an interesting question because it brings up the notion of are we blaming people? Um, well, if you, if you listen to some of the political rhetoric, um, uh, minorities in this country don't do as well as the white majority because they're lazy. Now, that kind of eliminates 200 years of history, and it's a dead wrong assumption. But it sure ends the discussion just as saying, well, the reason you're an alcoholic is it's your fault. Well, okay, it's my fault. Now what can we do? I still want to get over it. So that's where I am on it. It's a good question, and I think. Thank you, unknown person in Wisconsin. Perhaps best to leave fault on the tennis court. <laughs> Very nice. Well, perhaps we've said as much as we're going to say about Symphony for the Cells for now, but let's tell the listeners how they can get the book, Jim. Surprisingly, there's a large company online um, named after a, a bunch of very strong women uh, called Amazon, uh, which will carry the book. Obviously, the publisher, Inner Traditions, will carry the book. Uh, and if you mention this program, they'll give you uh, a 25% off. Um, and as we always have said when we were able to go to bookstores and wherever books are sold. So who's it's out gonna there. Gi- uh, the, Who's going to give the 25% off to our listeners? Inner Traditions. If okay. they go to directly Inner Traditions to the publisher. And Bear. Okay, sure. Yeah. I know them. They published uh, my psychedelic uh, medicine book. Um, exactly. We're going to move on then now to the third part of our interview, which concerns psychedelic medicine and microdosing. And I'm going to start out by mentioning that somehow you were able, correct me if I'm mistaken here, to get 1,500 volunteers from 59 countries to take small doses of LSD for an entire month. Now, is that in and of itself accurate? Um, in general, let me change all the numbers, but they're in the right direction. We actually have have had 3,000 people, only from 51 countries, but honestly, we stopped checking. Um, who wrote in and said to us, I would like to microdose. And on our website called microdosingpsychedelics.com, that's plural psychedelics, there were instructions as if you wish to microdose, here is an experimental protocol, which we have found from our first few hundred people seems to be useful. And it gives the doses for LSD, and psilocybin, which is about 95 to 98% of our, our sample, and other substances. And at one point, I actually wrote Nick and said, we don't think anyone is ever going to take pure synthetic psilocybin, but if they do, what's the correct dose? So what's the very, very low dose that we were looking at? So um, that's what's out there. And it also has one other important um, tab, which is medications. So... One of the questions we have from many, many people is, I'm taking X, Y, and Z. Can I microdose safely? 
That's a very important question. So if you pull down this tab, it's 185 substances, pharmaceuticals, herbs, um, all kinds of things that people have reported to us that they have been able to microdose with without, without having to give up their medication. So that's our sample. And we have just taken the part of the sample where we have a full month, and we are moving that literally this week to what's called open science. Open science is a platform where people put data so that anyone in the world can look at it. So we're putting our raw data out for other people to look at, partly because that's correct, and partly because um, we, being Sophia Corb and I, don't have the bandwidth and the time to do a whole lot of other analyses other than the ones we've done. So, so yes, there's a lot of people. Now, why? how come we have so many, right? 3,000. Yeah. Um, and we're closing, we keep trying to close the site so people would stop doing it. Um, because, you know, we keep, it's very hard when you're in my side of the, of the game, you hate to lose data. <laughs> when people want to give you data, it's hard to say no. It's kind of like people come to your house with nice food. And you say, well, I have enough. You say, but this is such nice food, I'll take your food too. <laughs> okay. So we are looking at a world phenomena. And our sample, now if you look at uh, many of your people listening will know a little bit about psychedelic research, and most good research has 12 subjects, 8 subjects, 20 subjects, uh, and then they write a paper for the Journal of, of Psychopharmacology. That's fine because they're doing a different kind of, they're doing research, which is they are testing a hypothesis. We're doing search which is discovering what people will do in, a, in their own world, in their own part of the world, with the substance they choose. And we're suggesting if they're going to do that, they should do it safely. And they should do it where they're going to have maximum benefit for the goals that they have set, not the experiment. So it's a, it's a very different, search is a different model. And yes, we have a lot of subjects. And it makes it much easier to, to know because we have subjects that would never be considered for psychedelic research. Uh, people with various mental issues, for example, people with physical problems that no one in the universe would think relates to psychedelics. And we have a bunch of them. Two questions now. One, please give us the website where listeners can go and read about this search that you did. Please okay. give us those websites. And the second question is, what are the headlines of what you learned from these 3,000 microdosers? Okay. The first question is, where can you get a write-up of all of this? And if you'll hold on for maybe a year, maybe a year and a half, I'll give you a book. Right now, we have a few papers in, um, in those scientific journals, and they're very sketchy. Um, and... I'm not very happy with them because all the, all the really fun parts, the editors keep cutting out because those of you who've read journals know that it's the worst form of writing that is allowed on the planet. Um, so we basically have talked a lot. And again, go to my website. Um, and there's a lot of presentations that I've given and Sophia and I've given at various professional conferences around the world. Um, but the basics are, Microdosing 
is one tenth to one twentieth of what's called a recreational dose. And with, with LSD, it's between seven and 12 micrograms. Now, here's how search works. Some years ago, same question, my answer would be 10 micrograms is a microdose. But when you have a few hundred people reporting in and they say, you know, 10 is a little high. I've found that what works for me is seven or eight. So what we found is that we needed to put in a range because human beings obviously are not all the same. With psilocybin, we had, we've lowered the range. It used to be 0.2 grams to 0.5 of, of mushroom, dried mushroom. We now put it down to 0.1 to 0.4 because we've been told by, by again, many, many people that's more accurate. So you can't do that in conventional double-blind research because you decide all that beforehand and you must do the same thing to each of your subjects that you said you would, even if it's not appropriate. So we're doing, we're, we're in discovery and discovery is, well, as you can tell from my feelings, it's much more fun because, I mean, let me give you a discovery, okay? I'm minding my own business. I had given a talk in England and I had suggested to the audience that any of them who wanted to microdose be in touch with me. Okay. There's a big conference in England called breaking conventions. And I get a note, I don't know, six, eight weeks later. And it's a, it's a woman who's an art historian in London. And she says, I know I owe you a report because I'd asked for reports, but this might interest you. During the month I was microdosing, I had my first normal period in my life. Okay? And I thought, what do psychedelics have to do with women's menstrual periods? And I thought, I know the literature, and I know there's nothing there, um, because nobody's thought to look at that. And also, in the literature, nobody's taken um, a microdose every few days over the period of a month. So I wrote back and I said something like, something kind of science-y like, uh, what was the dose and what was the substance and what are you doing every month? And she wrote back and she said, I'm not doing anything every month. I took microdosing for one month and then I stopped. My periods are normal. You have saved my life. Thank you. I went, woo! So what I do when I get one of those woo moments I call Sophia, who is the creative of our, of our database and the creative of our instruments and basically the scientist of the two of us. And I said, Sophia, here's this great story I want to tell you about. And she said, okay, let me look in the data and see if we have anybody else. And so it turns out of our, you know, at that point about 1,000 people, we had about eight people who'd reported improvements in their menstrual cycles. Some of them were microdosing every month. One woman only microdosed two days before her period, uh, and they reported improvement. So then Sophia turned to conventional scientists, people who study, in this case, um, PMS, and said, here's some data. I hope we can interest you. And the first response, and, and one of our questions was, why isn't this for every woman in our sample who's had difficult periods? And the researchers said, well, there's actually a whole bunch of reasons why women have difficult menstrual periods, either emotional or physical or both. And 
it's very hard. You know, there's no way to tell from your data which type they were. So that's, that's exploration. We don't do the next double blind study, but we do invite people to follow up on these remarkable findings, which are outside the span of the psychedelic research that I've been you know, involved in for decades. It sounds like these uh, people took the microdoses on a daily basis for a month. Did I get that correct? Okay. No, the protocol I came up with uh, early on in, in microdosing when I was just asking, you know, what we call family and friends um, and people who like to take stuff because I was just starting really exploration from nothing. And it turns out that, that many reported that it was a two-day effect. Okay? So I thought, okay, what's an experimental protocol? Because I want to find out what people are experiencing. So I said to people, if you're going to do this, can you take it on day one, don't take it on day two, and don't take it on day three? Day two is this, this kind of afterglow. Day three, you should go down to your baseline so that when you take it again on day four, you will experience it again, and you'll be able to record the difference between baseline and um, microdose space. And it turns out that that, ex and then we'd say, do that for a month, and then you know your own body, do what works for you. So that was an experimental protocol. Now, what's happened in the culture, and what we saw in our sample, is after about 30 days, for many people, they said, Day three is pretty good, too. So I think I'll keep to your protocol because one of the things we know about psychedelics is something called tolerance, which you can't take them every day. They start to not work. And so the, the taking it with days off is, um, is a necessity for them to be effective. Please, so explain, protocol, please protocol, explain to the listeners, you or Nick or both, why you cannot take psychedelics every single day. I'd rather Nick would do that. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, it's because of uh, receptor desensitization is the term we use in pharmacology. So uh, it's if you have a signal that's being activated constantly over and over and over again, it becomes desensitized. The cells adapt to that. The neurons adapt to that. And so they stop responding to that signal. And as, as Tim just said, it, it's, you know, it's tolerance. And so uh, it's a benefit to have a, a period of abstinence. Um, and a few days is, is probably plenty, um, you know, to see, to kind of get back to the baseline again. Thank you. <laughs> it's not just psychedelics. I would just comment there are other substances probably most widely known as like opioids produce a, a, a well-characterized tolerance, but other uh, drugs do too. Well, this is a question for another interview with you, Nick, when, uh, next time you're on the program, and I'd like our listeners to know that you'll be coming on uh, quite regularly. And, and the question will be for the future, Nick, is going to be, well, if it's the case that taking a psychedelic medicine uh, Re results in um, desensitization of receptors, then why is it not the case that we get the same desensitization in these medicines that Big Pharma is selling the public 
where they have people taking uh, antidepressants, various medicines every single day. Why aren't the antidepressants losing their ability to help after three or four days or a week or two or three? I mean, we have patients who are taking, you know, Luvox, Prozac, Levetra, not Levetra, excuse me, Anaphronil, various other, you know, medicines for years every single day. So let's tuck that question. That That's something to talk about because, sure. you know, I, 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 I'm always reminded of this book by Robert Whitaker, Anatomy of an Epidemic, where he talks about uh, the danger and the damage that's being done by taking these other uh, big pharma medicines on a daily basis for, for months and years at a time. Well, right. I, mean, I would just want to make one correction. Uh, it, uh, apparently, DMT uh, does not uh, produce tolerance. And this goes back to some work that Rick Strassman did in the early 90s. But uh, to my knowledge, uh, it's, it's the exception to the rule. That's interesting. It's particularly interesting with regard to what you're talking about, receptor desensitization, you know, why that wouldn't happen. Um, anything, we're running out of time, gentlemen. Is there anything that we would like to add before we close down for today? Yeah, uh, let me actually go through the... Uh, Look one at the, of the green light, Jim, please. One of the very common... Uh, <laughs> one of the very common um, requests from us, I mean to us, is I'm on antidepressants, either they don't work or I hate them. They're called treatment-resistant patients. We have found that people who microdose find that it is much easier to very slowly and correctly taper off those medications, which is their desire. So it's one of the very prominent uses of microdosing is the shift from a daily antidepressant, which means which people basically say either I don't like it because it makes me numb to a um, microdose where people say I'm not only unnumb, meaning I'm back to neutral, but my I'm more happy than I was. People basically say, I'm back. I have my full range of emotions again. So this is a major use. And when I say, you know, I said well, I had 3,000 people, I also follow Reddit. There's a sub-edit on Reddit for microdosing. It has 126,000 people talking to each other. So there's a lot of information coming up from what we call citizen science about the general use of microdosing. And so that's what I'm following. So I've never given a microdose to anybody, let alone to a laboratory animal. Okay. But I have been compiling these vast numbers of reports and daily check-ins on things like mood, mood scales. So we actually have a pretty good idea what the general population experiences. And that's what we're, that's what we're looking at. And that's what we're presenting. I have so many more questions, but we are out of time. So I'm going to close by saying thank you, Jim Fadiman, and thank you, Nick Cozy, for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. It's been a privilege and a pleasure, and I look forward to talking to both of you separately or together again in the near future. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. And I'm so happy to spend time with both of you who are really old friends. And um, thank you for the opportunity to share what 
what where my exploring is going next. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you for the opportunity. And Thanks for being I really here. enjoy the time spent together with you oh. and, and Jim. And thank you again, everyone, for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Please tune in again on the 10th of November at 9 o'clock. Go to mindbodyhealthandpolitics.org. Go to Listen Live. Just click on Listen Live, and you'll hear my broadcast with Governor Jerry Brown. You're going to enjoy it immensely. Until that time, I wish you good health. Look at this. This is the thing. Hey. Okay. I'll see you, Richard. See you, Jim. Thanks.